Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. We're podcasting a Bible study on Wednesday evenings for everybody who cannot be with us at the regular Wednesday night Bible class meetings at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ right here in Omaha. Now, if you're in the area, we encourage you to come and check us out and be with us in person. Study God's word with us, worship God with us, and grow spiritually with us. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. We keep emphasizing that. And because that is the reality of how faith develops and grows within us, then we really need to be in God's word on a regular, consistent basis. Now, our church building is located at 3606 North 108th Street, right here in Omaha. 3606 North 108th Street. And Wednesday night Bible class begins at... 6.30 each Wednesday evening. Sunday morning Bible classes begin at 9.30 every Sunday morning, followed by worship at 10.30. And then Sunday evening, 6 o'clock, we come back together for another period of worship and Bible study each Sunday evening. You're welcome to any and all of these services. We hope that you will come and check us out, study with us, get to know us. We also encourage you to share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means with your family members, friends, work associates, neighbors, with literally, literally everybody you can. You may help somebody get into God's word. You may help somebody grow in their faith, come closer to God. You may help somebody get to heaven. That'll be a great blessing for them, but also for you. And also tell everybody to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com. Click on the podcast button, sign up for our podcasting. It's free. It always will be free, always. When somebody signs up for our podcasting, they will receive automatically to their smart device, whether that's their phone or computer or whichever smart device they choose. They will receive our Wednesday night Bible class, our Sunday morning Bible class, all of our sermons, and a daily Monday through Friday radio program we call Search the Scriptures. Also, they'll receive a a seven-day-a-week short Bible study, only about 13 minutes each day, but it keeps us in God's Word each day. We call that today's Bible class. And again, all of that will automatically go to their smart device, and it will always be free. So take advantage of this, these opportunities yourself, and also tell everybody you can to do so as well. We're going to get back into our study from 3 John, and we're looking at, we're looking at a, an, an area here that we need to really come to understand. 3 John... And the Apostle John was writing here, talking about, well, arrogance, haughtiness, the wrong attitude, somebody trying to just basically take a position of superiority, of, of, of uh, power, authority, when that is not a scriptural right for that individual. Now, again, how did God determine? What did he instruct when it came to his guidelines as to the structure of the church as far as leadership is concerned? Leadership that would be in accord with God's will by his instruction. Now, mankind has made up a whole lot of different kinds of leadership mechanisms and structures that are not found in the scriptures. You've got in the denominational world, you've got, well, you've got 
conventions and synods and all kinds of hierarchy that you just don't find in the scriptures. You're getting, you know, in in one particular big religious group, you've got a you've got a, a pope at the head, and then you've got cardinals under him, and bishops under him, and priests under them, and and there's authority that is levied from the top all the way down through all of those different tiers of authority and leadership. The problem is you don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere. That's completely made up by man. When Paul was writing to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he told Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. Well, that is the God-designed and God-instructed structure for leadership within his church. And we're supposed to be his church. If we're supposedly teaching his word and living by it and teaching others to do so as well, if we're trying to live by that model that we have laid out for us in God's word, then we're supposed to have, at least we're supposed to work toward diligently and seriously and sincerely appointing elders in each congregation of the Lord's church. Now notice he says, set in order, all things are the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Now, every city indicates every congregation of the Lord's church. When you look through the, Old, uh, the New Testament scriptures, when it comes to addressing particular congregations, specific congregations within the Lord's church, you only find a congregation listed in each city. You don't find multiple congregations. Now, That's not saying that multiple congregations in a given city is unscriptural. Just in that first century, you only found one congregation listed in each city. Someone might say, well, what about the churches of Galatia? Galatia was a province. It was a Roman province. And so we're talking about basically something that we would compare to maybe a state within the United States. And so there were a number of different congregations with, that are referred to as the churches of Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, but they're talking about congregations in different cities or towns, uh, undoubtedly within that particular Roman province. So you find the church at Corinth, for example. You find the church at Rome. You find the church at Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica, and so on, Colossae, and so on. And so when Paul says to Titus, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking, in other words, things that need to be put in proper place, and he specifically identifies one of those things as being appointing elders in every congregation. Now, what is an elder? An elder, and you find three different terms from the Greek referring to this particular position of leadership within the Lord's church. And so you have presbyteros, you have uh, in in, in the Greek, and and that's translated variously as presbyter or bishop, and you have episkopos, and uh, that's, that's talking about that that's talking about uh, again the position of elder and 
and then you have, I'm sorry, episkopos, I believe, is, is, is what we translate into the English as, as, as bishop, and uh, elder, referring to an, a, not necessarily just a chronological age, but an, an age of maturity, and then, you know, also presbyteros, and I, be, I, I believe that's referring to overseer. Now, all of these are referring to the same position. You actually have them listed all three of those words in a couple of different places in context within the New Testament. First uh, Peter chapter 5 being one of those, the first few verses. And so you look at those, and they're all referring not to three different positions of leadership, but you're, you're talking about three different words describing three different aspects of the same position of leadership. So an elder referring to one who is more mature, older in his maturity as a Christian. He's been a Christian for a while. Then you have, again, the term bishop, and, and, and then you have the term overseer. Well, all of those are simply referring, again, to the same position, just three different aspects of that position of leadership. Then you have also deacons, but a deacon has no authority in and of himself except as assigned to him over specific works within a specific congregation by the elders. Now, the elders are not, we should look at them as overlords or bosses in, in, in that kind of sense that we would relate uh, to a, a, a supervisor, say, in a business today or in a, in, a, in a factory setting, perhaps, or in a corporation. But we're talking about, we're talking about a, a divine, you know, men who, by divine instruction from God, are appointed to be within their congregation. They are appointed to be the spiritual leaders on a human level within that congregation. Now, when you look at uh, different, a couple of different contexts of Scripture that refer to the qualifications or qualities that ought to be with, embodied within a man who is being considered to be an elder, you turn to 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, and you look at the first seven verses, and they're specific instructions. These are specific qualities. Beginning with verse 1, if a man desires the position of a bishop, again, uh, bishop being, <clears throat> being an overseer, then he desires a good work. So you don't want to appoint someone to become an elder within a congregation who does not agree, does not want to be an elder, a leader within that congregation. And then Paul goes on there in verse 2, and he says he needs to be blameless. Now, that, that doesn't mean he's a perfect man, but that he does not have, you know, as we might say, any outstanding warrants against him. Now, that would be a legal kind of term, but you know, we're talking about doesn't have any, any kind of outstanding sins that he, hasn't, that he hasn't repented of. He doesn't have something that would be an ungodly characteristic that he has not changed in his life. And then also the husband of one wife. So he needs to be married, and he also needs to be temperate and sober-minded, 
uh, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So these are qualities that would indicate spiritual maturity as a result of his having been uh, a Christian, a member of the Lord's church for, for a considerable period of time. He's grown in his knowledge of God's word. And so not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And all of these things would be good positive traits of Christian character, but also coupled with the understanding that he's been a Christian for a considerable period of time. He's grown in his maturity, and he's 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 a a good, loving husband, and then it goes on and says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Well, again, so he he is demonstrating good leadership qualities within the home. And then Titus chapter 1 talks about the same position of leadership within the Lord's church. If a man is blameless, verse 6 of Titus chapter 1, husband of one wife again, having faithful children, faithful children, now that he's raising them to believe in God and live faithfully before God, not accused, uh, not accused of the, the text as dissipation, and, and that would be, yeah, you know, debauchery, again, ungodly, unwholesome, immoral lifestyle, uh, or insubordination. He's someone who can, can take instruction himself. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but again, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, and very basic and key, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, these are all qualities that ought to be inherent within a man who is being considered by a congregation to be appointed as an elder within that congregation. Now, notice also that, that when Paul was talking about appoint, in, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, you know, appoint elders in every city. There's, I believe we're to understand within the New Testament scriptures on this subject that there should not be one elder within a congregation, but there should be a plurality of elders, a number of elders. Two would be the very minimum, but as many as there are men qualified to serve in that capacity of leadership. And, and so no one man would would have the the temptation that hey i am this is my church <laughs> i am the elder here no there are numerous elders or a multiplicity of elders two three four five again depending on the size of the congregation and how many men are qualified <clears throat> now at the same time within a group of elders within a congregation, there should not be allowed to have one man kind of raise himself up to be the head elder. You don't see that in the scriptures at all. And so <clears throat> this is a group of, of leaders, a group of men appointed to a very specific and important position of leadership within the Lord's church to lead that church together by consensus and so that's that's the understanding there. Now, when Paul is or when John is writing here to um, 
in, in this third this third letter, and this is a very short letter, only 14, 14 verses, he, he says in verse 9, again, only one, one chapter, just 14 verses, he says in verse 9 of 3 John, I, write to the, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, here was a man, apparently, within a male member of the congregation who was assuming a position of ruling over that congregation, Diotrephes. That's the way this text sounds to come across. He, he loves to have the preeminence, the, place of first, the first place of honor. Now, the first place of honor belongs to our Lord <clears throat> in the church in general, <clears throat> but, at, but also in every congregation of the Lord's church. Our Lord is the head of the church. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the church. There is no man or woman who is the head of the church scripturally. That position just is not in the, in the New Testament scriptures. And any, anyone who would assume such a role, either over the church as a whole or over a single congregation, is violating scripture. They're practicing false doctrine, and that cannot stand. And so Paul, or rather John, is saying, uh, I, I wrote to the church, but but Diotrephes does not receive us. Now, can you imagine a man in a congregation in the first century refusing to accept a divinely appointed apostle, John, one who walked with Jesus, one who seemed to be closer to Jesus than most of the rest of the apostles, one to whom Jesus entrusted the care and welfare of his mother when Jesus died on the cross? John goes on and says in verse 10, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, who, who wish to putting them out of the church. Now, he does not receive us. He, he, he prates against us with malicious words, as talking nonsense, talking down upon us. Now, this is a, a single man within a congregation who has assumed a position of total authority over that congregation is the way it sounds. And so he's rejecting the apostles. He is deciding himself as to who can be a member of that church and who cannot. Now, again, the scriptures tell us who can be a member of the Lord's church. We're baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. Romans 6 and verse 3, Acts 2 and verse 38, the Lord adds to the church those who are coming to salvation, Acts 2 and verse 47. So there is no one individual within any individual congregation or one individual who would assume control or authority over a number of congregations who could make that decision themselves, say, well, you're in, you're out, you cannot be in, you cannot, you know, over and over, and just, we accept you, we don't accept you. No, that, it has to be according to the scriptures. Now, we can use the scriptures to give us guidance as to, has this person, has this person 
been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins? Have they repented of their sins before being baptized? Do they understand that they are submitting to the will of God communicated to us through his scriptures? Are they living a faithful, righteous life before God? See, now, now those are what we might call qualifications, but for a man simply to take upon himself or a woman to take upon herself and say, uh, now we're not going to accept so-and-so. And particularly, we're talking about he was not he was not receiving, not allowing, John the apostle writes, not allowing them to be received. We're talking about a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus appointed him himself. And here is Diotrephes rejecting him? Now, what kind of nonsense is that? And Diotrephes is talking against John the apostle and maybe against some of the other apostles as well. Well, And then forbidding some to be members of the church when apparently John's indicating that they are true Christians. They should be readily accepted as members of that particular congregation where Diotrephes is a member, but where he's acting out of line for sure. But he's deciding some, some, he doesn't want some to be in. Well, why? He doesn't say anything about you know, doctrinal purity there or doctrinal qualifications. It just sounds like he's just deciding on his own. Some are going to be in, some are going to be out. Maybe it was a power structure or power struggle again. Whoever would be supportive of him, well, that's okay. But if they're not going to be supportive of him, if they're not going to recognize him as being the ruler there in that congregation, then they're not going to be a part of the congregation. You see, all of this, all of, all, all of this kind of thinking is worldly. It, it is of this world, and it's instigated by the devil. And so John is taking this particular man within that particular congregation to task. And, and so he says, you know, if I do come, you know, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. And so he's going to hold him to account. And, and, and that's only proper. Now, we, we talked about church discipline in an earlier section of our study. And a lot of people don't like the idea of church discipline, but it's taught in the scriptures. We cannot allow blatant sin blatant sinful lifestyles to be tolerated within the Lord's church. We need to help those people, those members, out of love, with compassion, with patience, help them see their error, and help them come back, come to repentance and come back to faithfulness before God. John goes on in verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And I think we can understand that there is at least an allusion here in that particular statement and instruction to the kind of practice that Diotrephes was practicing. It was evil because it was not scriptural. It was ungodly. It was something that would reflect the ways of the world, you know, arrogance and haughtiness and, you know, trying to grab onto power and, and, and elevate oneself, self-glory and, and, you know, and so on. He goes on and says, he, do, he who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. 
Then it goes on and dimensions another man. Verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. It's interesting. Here are, here's a contrast between two men, both of them members of the church. Both of them apparently had been baptized into Christ. Demetrius has maintained a good testimony. He has a good reputation within the church because he's living by the truth of God's word. Diotrephes, just the opposite. Now, it doesn't say Diotrephes is, is a murderer or a bank robber or anything like that, but he has, he has you know, asserted himself to be an overruler of the congregation where he is a member, and that's against the scriptures. Demetrius, on the other hand, he has a good testimony from all. And John says, we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So Demetrius apparently is known by John, and when he says, our witness, well, that might indicate the apostles in general, or it simply might be kind of a, you know, a literary use of a pronoun we, referring to John specifically. But John was a divinely appointed apostle again. Now, in verses 13 and 14, he concludes this short letter. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And so John, he closes the letter, again, only, thir- only 14 verses in this short letter. And he says, I had many things to write, but I'm, I'm, I'd rather just come and see you face to face. I'd rather be there with you. And he says, I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, specify who those friends are, but they would be members of the Lord's church, maybe even other apostles uh, among the original 12 and Matthias and Paul. Then he says, greet the friends by name. Greet the friends by name but he does not name them himself. be interesting to know which ones he was referring to. But again, he does not let Diotrephes, does not let Diotrephes keep him from coming to that congregation of the Lord's church as an apostle and with divine authority. Interesting, interesting. We need to always stand for the truth, but we need to know what the truth is in order to be able to stand for it. We'll close that particular letter. We'll pick up with Jude next time. Now, this is another one-chapter letter. I think we understand most correctly that Jude was actually one of the biological brothers of Jesus, if you want to think in that way, Mary being the biological mother of Jesus, and then Jude being one of his biological brothers. Again, Joseph was Jesus's legal father under the Jewish legal system, but Joseph did not father Jesus. That was through the Holy Spirit, by God through the Holy Spirit. Now, Jude would have been the son, I I believe we're to understand, biological son of Joseph, but also of Mary, uh, Jesus's biological mother. And this one chapter letter from Jude is much longer than 2 John and 3 John, and it really emphasizes a very important 
point, and that is that we really need to be on guard against false teachers and false teaching, because that can corrupt the Lord's church. So we'll start to look at that next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us your Bible, the Word, your Word, Scripture, to guide us in the truth of your will for our lives, and also in the truth as to what you want us to be as your church, the body of Christ. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word to guide us. And guide us, help us, give us wisdom and direction to see how to understand your word correctly and make the correct applications to our lives as individual Christians and as the Lord's church. And help people who are not living accurately, faithfully by your teachings. Help them to see their error and touch their hearts, Father. Help them to come to repentance and correction, please, we pray. Please guide us to be your humble servants always, Father. And we pray, Father, that you will please, please forgive us of our sins and hear a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.